Is it time to wake up from our summer slumbers? Remember last week, the bond market was waving little yellow flags. Now I think the bond market is starting to wave little orange flags. We continue to go lower on the 10-year, 1.182. We have been following this closely. Hello and welcome everyone to the Northern Miner Podcast, a one-of-a-kind mining podcast. Uh, I am your host, Adrian Pocabelli, and it is a pleasure to be joining you. And I was thinking, like, how to characterize the moment we're in. A wonderful challenge to have, by the way, on a weekly basis that I take upon myself. And this is the image. I don't think people are returning from the Hamptons yet to deal with the markets. But I think the cell phones are ringing a little more often. Maybe there is a little more chatter about what's going on because, again, as we look at the tea leaves, because what do we see? And do not do not worry, folks, we are getting to metals. They provide a crucial puzzle piece to our narrative here. But the interesting thing about the tenure, it's what do we make of it? They're almost like tea leaves or like, was it ancient Greece where they took out the guts and they looked at it or the sticks, you know, and Asia, you know what I'm saying? It's an oracle of sorts. The ten, like, Because I think the obvious interpretation, which was sort of lurking at the back of my head here for the last few weeks, maybe yours too, was it was the Delta COVID variant that was perking up. And that has become the story, right? That if you looked at, you know, market down 900 points yesterday, Dow was down. We're all having these sort of, you know, PTSD from last March or the March a year ago when everything started to crash on COVID. And I had another thought. As you know, as Raoul Powell says, the bond market speaks the truth. And I think that's such a great saying. And I think in a lot of ways he's right. I think a year ago, March, we did see the warning first in bonds and then the stock market reacted. Again, One wonders if we're seeing the same thing now. The bonds have been sort of giving us a little sign the last few weeks that as they go lower in yield, things may not be quite as wonderful as they seem. I'll tell you another thing, though, as we consider the 10-year as an oracle of sorts or as tea leaves of a certain kind, and I'm just throwing a crazy idea out there for you, but what if it's Taiwan? What if the bond market is actually getting worried about Taiwan? I mean, we're hearing some pretty, shall we say, unconventional talk out of China about nuking Japan being, will be first and will continue to do it. They erased that, those tweets. I mean, you know, when Japan came out and said they would defend Taiwan. So that's my sort of other issue. You know, Japan has the Olympics going on, so one wonders if that might be the perfect time to do it when Japan is supposedly distracted. Is that why they signaled, you know, the other day that they would do something? And so all very interesting. Now, if we turn to our metals, I just looked at our metal prices for this week. They remain elevated. They remain elevated. So what does that mean? Maybe putting it another way. What if we go into recession? We haven't tapered. 
we're doing historic stimulus still that actually makes 2008 pale in comparison. What happens under those circumstances if we go into recession? What on earth does the Fed do? Now, people talk about their toolbox and how they always have more to do. Do they buy more bonds? Who knows? You know, another interesting thing. So gold is kind of perking up. And we kind of see this sometimes when it looks like disaster is going to hit. Gold perks up a little bit, but then it eventually sells off with everything else and then recovers quickly. And it's funny, I was talking to my friend who is also into crypto, and I was saying, you know, like, although I have a lot in crypto, I was saying, you know, if this thing really crashes, we could get rich off of this thing because of the volatility in crypto. People say that's a criticism, but really... That's why you get these 5, 10, 20x. If you're into junior gold miners, you know, I don't see how you can be into junior gold miners as an investor and not be in, you know, the Disneyland of investing with crypto because it's kind of like gold miners, but faster and more intense and more volatile. So, you know, gold mining investors for another generation, maybe. I like both, but yeah. So, anyways, crypto is so easy. You know, I moved to Germany and getting stock accounts, everything. It's so complicated, this stuff. You get an app and it's just simple. No one's telling you 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 can't take out your money. It's all your money. If you want to give $100,000 to send it over somewhere, you do it just like that. You know, you try doing that with your bank. You see how many weeks it takes you. See how many forms, see how many people you have to talk to. And, of course, they do that to protect you, you know, in theory, and it probably does protect, but, you know, you don't want, if someone takes your data, they can stop that. So, you know, there's a trade-off, but I tell you, it's, it feels like it's your money when you can do something like that. Anyway, we have an exciting episode coming up for you. I decided to take a look at Alcoa and Alcoa's earnings call. They're always traditionally kind of early, if not first, with reporting earnings. Earnings season is underway. And we had seen that story about aluminum in Russia and how Russia was kind of clamping down a bit, talk of inflation, all this sort of thing. So I thought, let's listen to Alcoa. And Alcoa is pretty interesting, what they have to say. They had a record quarter. And China is very interesting stuff that actually backs up what Anthony Malowski was saying, that China is cracking down on pollution. As part of that, they're cutting back on their aluminum smelters. And so, according to Alcoa, as you'll hear in this conference call, this is quite bullish. And I edited this conference call for everybody just because, you know, you don't necessarily need to hear every nook and cranny of the EBITDA earnings. Uh, so, it is uh, excerpts of the conference call, but you get the, the meat and potatoes of it. And so... What Alcoa was pointing out is that China is actually a net importer of aluminum, which we probably kind of already assumed, but interesting to hear that from the CEO. And also, they are working on low-carbon aluminum, and that's a quote, low-carbon aluminum, and they have a special technique. They have mechanical vapor recompression. 
I guess that's, that's a technique. And that can reduce carbon from a refinery by 70%. So all very, very topical. So I think you'll enjoy it. I kept it to about 15 to 20 minutes. So a nice, straight from the horse's mouth, educational view of what is happening in aluminum. You know, if, if the car market is at the core of the global economy or one of the key sort of centers, then aluminum, I imagine, is right along with it as one of the main ingredients, from my understanding, of the modern-day car. So with that, if you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter, at Northern Miner. You can find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts. And wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. And with that, let's turn to the news. And turning to the website, we have a few summer stories here for you today. We're going to turn to the Philippines first, who has changed its stance on the Dipidio mine. This is by Cecilia Jamazmi. And it says here, Australia's Oceana Gold said the Philippines has renewed its contract for the Dipidio Gold and Copper Mine for another 25 years after almost two years of the operation being halted due to a dispute with a provincial government over the company's license to operate. The renewed financial or technical assistance agreement applies retroactively from June 19th, 2019 and keeps financial terms and conditions unchanged, Oceana Gold says. It does, however, provide an additional 1.5% of gross revenue to be allocated to regional communities and provinces that host the operation. Shares climbed almost 3% on the news, closing at $2.46 Australian dollars, the highest price in July so far. Oceana Gold kicked off renewal of the 25-year permit in 2018. After it expired in June 2019, the company kept Depidio operating under a temporary license, but a blockade backed by the local government forced the Brisbane miner to suspend operations. A few weeks later, it also had to lay off hundreds of workers. I remember this. I think we actually had it on this program. And we have a quote from Oceana Gold. The company's first operational priority is the rehiring and training of its Philippine workforce, which will include a focus on safeguarding workers from the current risks associated with COVID-19. They plan to start the mine, the Tepidio mine, as soon as possible. And operations will resume initially with a milling of stockpiled ore of about 19 million tons. And so that is happening on the, in the ongoing saga of resource nationalism. What I consider the new relationship between mining companies and countries in general, particularly in what we might call more developing countries, they just want a bigger slice of the pie. And I don't think an extra one and a half percent should break the bank for Oceana Gold. So continuing on in the Australasian part of the world, Western Australia plans world's biggest renewable energy hub. Also by Cecilia Jamazmi, an international consortium plans to build what would be the world's biggest renewable energy hub along the south coast of Western Australia. The Western Green Energy Hub, or WGEH, would stretch across 15,000 square kilometers 
an area bigger than the size of Greater Sydney and could produce up to 50 gigawatts of energy. The $75 billion U.S. project would also convert wind and solar power into green fuels like hydrogen. Now, the project's 50 gigawatt capacity compares to the 54 gigawatts of generation capacity of all the coal, gas, and renewable plants in Australia's energy market, which includes all states except Western Australia and the Northern Territory. The country's largest coal plant generates just 2.9 gigawatts. So this is an ambitious project. Really, it sounds like they're trying to replace their coal and gas with green energy, uh, 50 gigawatts. So 50 gigawatts versus the traditional 54 gigawatts for coal, gas, and other renewables. The group behind the proposal, including Intercontinental Energy and CWP Global, said the green hydrogen market will be worth $2.5 trillion by 2050. Both companies are already involved in the Asian Renewable Energy Hub. And again, this is contrasted with the Western Green Energy Hub. So both companies are already involved with the Asian Renewable Energy Hub, another contender for the largest green power site that was rejected by Australia's environment minister last month. Hong Kong-based Intercontinental is also seeking to develop a green hydrogen project in Amman. So that is happening. I mean... Yeah, I don't know what the situation is there between, say, a Hong Kong-based company and Australia. There was such more fighting words from China against Australia in the last few months. So I don't know how that would work. Maybe business can be seen as independent, but it looks like Australia, Australia's environment minister rejected the Asian Renewable Energy Hub. So maybe that had something to do with it. Who knows? Continuing on the renewable energy front, Tesla has filed a patent for lithium extraction and this is by Valentina Ruiz Leotod. Information obtained by Electric revealed that Tesla filed a new patent related to the acid-free saline lithium extraction process mentioned by Elon Musk during Battery Day in September 2020, titled, quote, Selective Extraction of Lithium from Clay Minerals, end quote. The patent states that extracting lithium from ore using sodium chloride is an environmentally friendlier way to obtain the metal compared to currently used techniques such as acid leaching. According to Tesla, it also allows for higher recoveries. I think other people are working on this too, or something similar. In detail, the process allows for extracting lithium from clay minerals and compositions by mixing a cation source with the clay mineral, performing a high-energy mill of the clay mineral, and performing a liquid leach to obtain a lithium-rich leach solution. Following the release of this information, Canadian miner Spearmint Resources jumped at the opportunity of reminding Musk that not far away from his Gigafactory 1 in Story County, the Clayton Valley Lithium Clay Project is being developed with the goal of supplying the local market. And also Cypress Development, which is next door, apparently hosts a world-class resource of lithium-bearing claystone. So interesting little developments there on the lithium front. And if we turn to the uranium front, NextGen inks two agreements with First Nations. A hodgepodge of summer articles here for you today. This is by Marilyn Scales, who is coming back to help out. She was at the Canadian Mining Journal before. And she is helping out. NextGen Energy recently signed two benefit agreements with First Nations affected by the proposed development of its Rook One uranium project near the southwest rim of the Athabasca Basin in Saskatchewan. The project is located on traditional territory of the Buffalo River Dene Nation, or BRDN, and the Birch Narrows Dene Nation, or BNDN. 
The company has signed an impact benefit agreement with the BRDN and a mutual benefit agreement with the BNDN. The agreements were developed out of the study agreement signed in 2019. So the agreements formalized the negotiations with both communities to identify potential impacts to treaty rights and socioeconomic interests. NextGen said in a press release that the agreements, quote, do not abrogate, extinguish, or constitute the abandonment of any existing Aboriginal inherent or treaty rights the nations may have. Now, NextGen, of course, has that massive Rook One project with the Aero Uranium deposit, and that, based on a uranium oxide price of $50 per pound, is estimated to be worth an after-tax net present value and an 8% discount of $3.47 billion. And so, yeah, I mean, for those who are in the uranium market, they have definitely paid attention to next-gen energy, which really has kind of been one of those big junior projects that really gets a lot of, I don't want to call it hype because maybe it's merited, but a lot of attention. So one to follow if you're in the uranium sort of market and just kind of curious. It's good bellwether. Still in Canada, Maple Gold Mines to buy former Eagle Mine in Quebec, also by Maryland Scales. Now, there are, I think, a few projects called Eagle in Quebec. Maple Gold Mines has entered into an option agreement with Globex Mining Enterprises regarding the past-producing Eagle Gold Mine, 60 kilometers southwest of Matagami, Quebec. Ownership of the mine will consolidate the historic high-end Eagle Telbell underground mines at the Jutel Gold Project. This is a 50-50 joint venture of Maple Gold Mines and Agnico Eagle Mines. So, bit of movement there. The Eagle Mine in Quebec, a past-producing mine. You know, I imagine as technology gets better, these past-producing mines can probably be revisited and probably a lot can be done with them. And wrapping up here, Thor Explorations expects first gold pour at Segi Lola by the end of July. This is by Jackson Chen. Thor Explorations has announced the commissioning of the gold processing plant at its wholly owned Segi Lola gold project in Nigeria and confirmed it expects to pour the first gold by the end of July. The process plant is being commissioned in phases, with commissioning already underway at the power plant. Commissioning of the SAG and ball mills will follow. So a bit of a quiet news cycle here, but you just get the sense things are bubbling underneath the surface. So those are your news stories. Now let's take a closer look at metal prices. prices, we'd like to thank our friends at mining.com slash markets for providing us with these prices each and every week. And on July 20th, the 10-year bond, the U.S. 10-year bond is at 1.182%. That is 0.16% lower than last week when it was 1.34. And when you look at the last six weeks since we've been tracking this, it was 1 1.55, 1.5, 1.48, 1.485, 1.42, 1.34, 1.19. So a steady decline in the 10-year bond. Turning to precious metals, gold is trading at $1,816.09. That is $9 higher than last week. Uh, silver is trading at $25.18. 
That is 89 cents lower than last week. Platinum is trading at $1,082.82 per ounce. That is $36 lower than last week. And palladium is trading at $2,610.08 per ounce. That is $234 lower than last week. And turning to our industrial metals, copper is trading at $4.26 per pound. That is two cents lower. Aluminum is trading up a penny at $1.13 per pound. Lead is unchanged at $1.06 per pound. Nickel is up 10 cents at $8.57 per pound. And tin is also higher at $15.50 per pound. That is 50 cents higher. And cobalt is at $23.81 per pound. That is 92 cents higher than last week. And zinc is a penny higher at $1.35 per pound. So a bit of a mixed bag here. Nothing sensational, but gold climbing a little higher, silver down a bit, platinum and palladium down a bit. So which would suggest that our industrial precious metals are lower, while gold, the fear trade, maybe is trading higher. I mean, I use the fear trade reservedly because sometimes it gets crushed with everything else in a market downturn. And again, I would stick with you know, industrial metals stay elevated. We have copper at 426, aluminum basically hovering near its, you know, two-year highs. We have lead hovering near its two-year highs, nickel near its two-year highs. And I say two-year because that's how far these numbers go back for me that I've been tracking it. You know, tin at 1550, that's the highest tin number we've had. So no real break on the, you know, industrial metal inflation trade, interestingly. Like, it's not rocketing higher, but it's not exactly falling either. And those are your metal prices. And coming up, we have Alcoa's Q2 conference call featuring Roy Harvey, president and CEO of Alcoa, and William Opplinger, who is executive vice president and they discuss the latest in the aluminum markets, and it is very illuminating. So I will just get straight to it. I hope you enjoy it and find it insightful, and I will see you on the other side. Thank you to everyone for joining our call. Before we get started, I want to take a moment and emphasize once again that Alcoa's actions are always guided by our values. We consistently act with integrity, operate with excellence, and care for people. That is true every quarter, but it's been especially important in this past year and a half as the world has wrestled with unprecedented challenges brought on by the COVID-19 pandemic. While risks remain, vaccines have helped to move many of the world's economies forward again. I'm proud of the work that our Alcoa employees following our values have done to mitigate these risks, supporting each other, our business, and our communities. I am disappointed, however, that we had two serious injuries during the quarter, a hand injury and a case of heat stress. These are both important reminders that there are numerous everyday risks that we must consistently work to eliminate or reduce. Our most important objective is the safety of our employees. Now, let me quickly recap some of our results, which Bill will describe in greater detail. 
We posted our highest ever quarterly earnings per share since becoming an independent company in 2016. It's also our most profitable first half of the year in the aluminum segment. The results demonstrate that our strategic priorities are working to improve this company and deliver results. It's a very good time to be in the upstream aluminum business, and it's a good time for Alcoa, with a company that is stronger now than any time since our 2016 launch. We've made significant progress on our strategy to strengthen our balance sheet, eliminating all long-term debt maturities until 2026. Importantly, we are now well within our target range of proportional adjusted net debt. We also delivered above and beyond our previously announced target to generate cash from non-core asset sales. Although we have reached our target on this program, we will continue to evaluate other sales when it makes sense. Last month's sale of the former East Alco smelter site in Maryland, which had been closed since 2010, was an example of this. The new owner will use the property for a next-generation data center. This, too, is an example of our strategic priorities working. It shows that former brownfield sites can bring economic value for our company and the communities where we used to operate. Across Alcoa, we've worked to ensure this company can succeed through all commodity cycles. When market prices plummeted last year, we were resilient because of the strategies we already had in place. Our plants remained operational and performed well. We stayed focused on the future, continuing to make improvements. Now, with stronger markets, we're capturing the benefits from much better pricing and driving it to the bottom line. While we will continue to improve our portfolio of assets, our aluminum segment saw our company's highest ever third-party realized price. Also, ongoing strength in customer demand and China's efforts to reform its industry suggest continued strength in global aluminum pricing. The metal we produce is an important material for the future and more sustainable solutions. We're ready for that future through existing low-carbon products and the development of breakthrough technologies that we're working to bring to the market. I look forward to discussing this and more, but now I'll ask Bill to dig deeper into our financial results. Bill, please go ahead. Thanks, Roy. It was another great quarter. Revenues at $2.8 billion were steady sequentially, and after removing the impact of the Warwick rolling mill sale, were up 7%. Revenues were up $685 million, or 32% from the same period last year on higher aluminum prices. Second quarter earnings per share was $1.63 per share, 70 cents per share higher than the prior quarter, and $2.69 per share higher than the year ago quarter. Adjusted earnings per share for the second quarter nearly doubled sequentially to a record $1.49 per share. Adjusted EBITDA, excluding special items, also increased up 19% sequentially to $618 million and more than triple last year's $185 million. A key reason for our record net income this year and a key differentiator from prior years has been the relative contribution of our aluminum segment. With modest income taxes and virtually no minority interest, more aluminum segment EBITDA translates to the bottom line compared to the other segments. In the first half of 2021, the segment provided 65% of Alcoa's total adjusted EBITDA, excluding special items, compared to 28% of the total in our previous best first half 2018. Even though Alcoa's adjusted EBITDA was $376 million lower in the first half of 2021 compared to the same period in 2018, 
Of course, first half 2021 net income, excluding special items, was $20 million higher than 2018. A similar dynamic also holds true for cash flows. Our pension and OPEB net liability has decreased $1.7 billion, or 55%, from the 2016 year-end balance of $3.1 billion to $1.4 billion. Liquidity is very good. Our cash balance was $1.65 billion at quarter end. Moving to our outlook for the remainder of the year. Our outlook for the full year 2021 is improving slightly in several areas. Shipments, the expected ranges are increasing 100,000 tons in both the bauxite and alumina segments and increasing 200,000 tons in the aluminum segment. On the income statement, transformation costs are improving $5 million. In cash flows, there are two expected improvements. Pension and OPEB cash funding is expected to be $5 million better and environmental and ARO spending is expected to be $10 million better than the last time we showed this chart. More importantly, we expect the third quarter to be another very solid quarter. Operations are expected to continue performing at a high level. Current aluminum prices are significantly higher and alumina prices are higher too compared to the second quarter. We will see some partial offsets these benefits as we are seeing cost inflation in the form of higher raw material costs, energy, and transportation costs. Finally, with current market prices indicative of another quarter of substantial earnings, we expect our operational tax expense to be over $100 million in the third quarter. Now let me turn it back to Roy. Thanks, Bill. Now turning to our markets, as Bill noted, the aluminum segment has a significant role in our profitability and we saw a continued upward trend in realized pricing last quarter. It grew more than 60% since the low in the second quarter of 2020. Broad economic recovery, manufacturing restarts, and tightness in the physical availability of aluminum have all continued to support this rally in the LME and regional premiums. We have observed strong macroeconomic trends, including positive GDP and industrial production in many of the world's leading economies. Also, monetary and fiscal stimulus programs, both announced and implemented, have supported stronger demand in aluminum's end-use markets. That is expected to continue as vaccination efforts advance, lockdowns are eased, and stimulus measures progress. In addition, as noted last quarter, we continue to see China moving to constrain supply growth in energy-intensive industries, like aluminum, to help meet its own goals to reduce carbon emissions. For Alcoa's commercial impacts specifically, in aluminum, we are also seeing significant year-over-year growth for value-add products. In the second quarter, we saw increases in both sales and shipments. The second quarter was the fourth consecutive sequential improvement in shipments, up 11% for the quarter and 40% year-over-year. For full year 2021, we expect continued year-over-year growth in value-add product sales revenue. Now, let me return to the topic of China for a deeper look as it continues to play a predominant role in global aluminum industry fundamentals. The country is continuing to focus on energy intensive industries to assist with its decarbonization goals. In its announced 14th five-year plan, which ends in 2025, the government set its highest priority goals, including work to reduce carbon emissions by 18% per unit of GDP and to reduce energy consumption per unit GDP by 13.5%. The 
The Chinese central government has set dual control targets for each province on energy intensity per unit of GDP and total energy consumption. On the left, you'll see a summary of the publicly disclosed first quarter outcomes for this dual control system for China's 17 aluminum producing provinces. The colors correspond to a traffic light approach that the government has deployed and as described on the chart. Results from this snapshot show that provinces that produce close to 65% of China's primary aluminum have been rated yellow or red for at least one of the two targets. China's central government has called on provinces not meeting targets to tighten energy efficiency controls. In response, some provinces are limiting new projects in energy intensive industries such as primary aluminum smelting. Inner Mongolia has already curtailed primary aluminum production in response to this program and other factors. This is on top of other developments we are seeing where Chinese provinces are taking action to limit primary smelting growth as part of their own policy priorities. For example, Shandong province, home to around 20% of Chinese aluminum capacity, recently announced its intention to strictly enforce implementation of the reduction principle which would apply a two-thirds scaling factor to inter-provincial capacity transfers. To give an example, this would mean that for a smelter in Shandong to expand capacity by 100,000 metric tons per annum, it would require a purchase or transfer of 150,000 metric tons per annum of capacity permit. Finally, in Gansu this year, we have noted that the province canceled preferential power tariffs for primary aluminum smelters. In addition, the Chinese government also has started the first phase of a national emissions trading scheme, with the aluminum industry expected to be included in subsequent phases with other industries. China is also continuing to work towards its announced limit of carbon and energy-intensive primary aluminum capacity of 45 million tons per annum, a target announced in 2017 as part of supply-side reform policies. Considering all of the ongoing efforts in China, the country is expected to remain a net importer of primary aluminum, with the potential for new capacity to be needed outside of China in the future. Clearly, Chinese policies on carbon emissions reduction and energy have the potential to drive significant positive change in global aluminum industry fundamentals. Next, I want to highlight the fact that our three segments continue to perform well allowing us to capture the benefits from the positive market fundamentals we're currently experiencing. We have remained focused on strengthening our operations through improved processes and reliability to ensure that we continue to operate with stability. In bauxite, we're continuing to boost our production from majority-owned mines and seeing higher tons from joint venture mines. In Western Australia, we reached a major milestone earlier this year for our Willowdale mine, relocating the hub to a new region known as Larago. Transferring to this new region included a highly engineered process that involved moving an 850-ton crusher. It was an impressive project, and I congratulate the team for a safe and successful move to this new region, which will be used for the next couple of decades. In Illumina, we're maintaining production at near record levels for the world's most cost-competitive refinery system. We've continued to improve our processes to reduce bottlenecks and operate efficiently. In Illumina, we're benefiting from the restart of the ABI smelter in Beconcourt, Quebec, that was fully completed last year, albeit partially offset by the Intalco curtailment. Now, let's turn to some of our achievements in the first half of the year. First, as mentioned earlier, we overachieved on our goal relating to the sale of non-core assets while continuing to evaluate future opportunities. 
We also made progress this year in our portfolio review, which includes opportunities for significant improvement, curtailments, closures, or divestitures. Earlier this year, we were pleased to announce the repowering of our Portland aluminum smelter in Australia. From a financial standpoint, as we noted, our balance sheet is in the best shape since our launch as a standalone company due to the actions we've taken. Today, we have more flexibility to execute on Alcoa's strategies. From a sustainability perspective, we are well positioned in an evolving marketplace that is placing greater emphasis on low-carbon products. In June, we shipped the first commercial loads of Ecosource, the world's first and only low-carbon smelter-grade aluminum brand. This particular product, which is part of our Sustaina family, leverages our leadership as the world's largest third-party provider of alumina with a refining system that has the globe's lowest average carbon dioxide intensity. While we have a strong position currently in our industry with the most comprehensive line of low-carbon products, we're also leading in the development of next-generation technologies. We developed a zero-carbon smelting process that helped create the technology basis for our Ellis' joint venture. The technology eliminates all direct greenhouse gas emissions from the traditional smelting process, producing instead pure oxygen. Metal produced from this ongoing R&D project has already been used in commercial products, including from the deal we announced earlier this year to supply metal for the wheels used on Audi's e-tron GT, the company's first electric sports car. The Ellisys joint venture is now ramping up the technology and began construction last month on commercial-sized inert anode cells in Quebec, which will complement the ongoing work at Alcoa's Technical Center near Pittsburgh and at the Ellisys Research and Development Center in Quebec. Also, we announced in May that we're investigating the application of a technology known as mechanical vapor recompression, which has the potential to reduce a refinery's carbon footprint by approximately 70%. It would use renewable energy to capture waste heat and produce high-pressure steam which would then be used to provide a refinery's process heat, displacing the use of natural gas. The Australian Renewable Energy Agency has provided funding for testing. If successful, by the end of 2023, Alcoa of Australia would install a mechanical vapor recompression module at the WagerUp refinery to test the technology at scale. We will continue to progress in the second half of the year. We're continuing to pursue a solution for our San Cebrián smelter in Spain, including working with the workers, representatives, and government stakeholders on a sales process for that asset. In the state of Texas, we continue to work on the sale of the former Rockdale site, known as Sandow Lakes Ranch. The real estate listing includes more than 30,000 acres with significant water rights. From a financial perspective, we are focusing on capital allocation in light of the improvements we've made to our balance sheet and the evolution of our product markets. We will remain committed to executing on our advanced sustainably priority through our continued development of breakthrough technologies and a focus on growing sales from our Sustaina line, which will help our customers lower their carbon footprint. We will continue to improve our business by executing on our consolidated capital expenditure budget for 2021 that includes both sustaining and return-seeking projects. Next month, we intend to begin construction on one of the sustaining capital projects at our Fossil Chicaldas refinery where we will implement technology we first adapted in Western Australia. Known as residue press filtration, it saves water and reduces the use of land required to store residue. From a return-seeking perspective, we're also working on a project at our Deschambeau smelter in Quebec, boosting amperage to enable lower costs and increase the smelter's annual production capacity by approximately 10%.
The project is expected to be commissioned by the end of the year. Before we close our formal remarks, I want to emphasize again the significant progress we've made, not only since the inception of our company, but the accelerated progress during these last several months. Our facilities are consistently operating well, capturing the benefits of this much improved market. We demonstrated resilience through the challenges of 2020, and we have the operational know-how, structure, processes, and systems to succeed. With a significantly improved balance sheet, our company is positioned well for the future, yet we will continue to push to perform even better. Relentless and continuous improvement is the Alcoa way. Finally, we are proud to be a values-based company with leadership in environmental, social, and governance practices. And we will continue to lead with breakthrough technologies, processes, and products for a more sustainable future. Thank you once again for your time today. Well, you see which way the wind is blowing on the environmental front. ESG has won the day. And just stating the obvious here in our outro, so thank you once again for listening. If you want to help out the podcast, you can share it with your friends, anybody in geology, geology students out there. And you can also share it online on Twitter. If you tag us, you will get a retweet. Thanks once again for joining the show. Hope you're having a wonderful summer. And until next week, take care.